Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 8 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. In this eighth episode of the fourth series, we're taking a look at the challenges for risk and compliance functions posed by corporate investigations. Now, those can lead to enforcement action, legal action, and or reputational damage for the firm. And that's even before you get to thinking about the potential for personal liability. Now, to discuss the issues and help clear a, steer a relatively clear path through what can be very stressful times for compliance functions, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Helen Chan. Hi, Susanna. Thank you for joining us. Now, I'm just going to sort of tee up the discussion a wee bit more, um, talking about the policies and procedures, really just the sort of strategic approach firms ought to take to corporate investigations. Now, this and this may well be stating the entirely obvious, corporate investigations tend to come as a surprise. They are hardly ever flagged by anybody. You can have a can start with a regulator, you can start with the police, it can be a dawn raid, whatever it is. But firms really should have a policy in place, a policy agreed at the very highest levels of the firm in place to handle the unexpected, to handle the unexpected investigation, whatever the source of that. So the things that ought to be in that policy include communication. If a corporate investigation kicks off, who do you have to tell? what's the chain of command and who ought to make decisions around it. So you need a whole suite of communication protocols that are internal. So I would suggest that includes the line manager, the business line manager, the compliance function, the risk function, and then all the way up to the board, potentially also the chairman of the board, depending on how serious it is. You also then ought to have your PR function involved, potentially your HR function if there are particular people under investigation. You also then need to think about who you tell externally. If your regulator is not the person investigating, I would suggest your regulator needs to be told. Equally, if you are a big diverse group, there may be other regulators that need to be told as well. Now, that's in the first white heat of any corporate investigation. There are then more details that need to be gone into. Are you aware of the records that are being taken or co-opted? Do you know where your legal protocol is? Do you know where all of your data is? And that, for some firms, is a very big question indeed. What is going to be the protocol for uh, computers being removed, offices being raided, all of those sorts of things? Do you know what is where so that you know what has been taken and what is being under what is being investigated? Because after all, in some investigations, you're not told what they're looking for. So all of those elements need to come together in a policy. And the policy necessarily will be relatively broad brush because you are expecting the unexpected. And therefore, you need to have a policy that is sufficiently flexible, but also robust. That's a neat trick to pull off, I understand, but it has to be done. Because otherwise, if you don't have this in place and you're not as on the front foot as you possibly can be, you have the real potential of turning a bad situation into a potentially catastrophic one. So up front, I would suggest a really strong policy on how to handle corporate investigations. That may well be tied into your policy on dawn raids because they are potentially extremely similar. 
But key elements are the communication protocol, the information flows, line of sight to what's been taken, and to make sure you keep everybody who needs to know informed. <clears throat> On that note, I'll, I'll hand over to Helen to begin to chat through some of the key corporate examples we've seen in this recently, particularly with a focus on Asia. So Susanna, I just wanted to expand your point on how a lot of times these investigations can cover anything. And um, a lot of the times businesses aren't really told exactly what the scope of the investigation is or what kinds of documents specifically um, a regulator or an authority is looking for. More recently, in some parts of Asia, we've seen investigations that are linked to a geopolitical element. So that vastly sort of expands the scope of what an investigation can cover and what sorts of documents can be seized. Um, and in some cases, staff can even also be detained. So, for example, last week in Taiwan, the Investigation Bureau of the Ministry of Justice raided about eight Chinese chip component suppliers across. Um, across their territory. The regulators allege that these companies violated cross-strait relations laws um, in their hiring of certain engineers and high-tech industry workers. And that actually poses a national security risk, according to the regulators, in addition to commercial and competition issues. The Bureau said that some of these companies misrepresented themselves as either local or non-Chinese companies um, in order to hire staff and operate without the necessary regulatory approvals for hiring workers in sensitive industries. And they really highlighted that as something that presents a possible national security risk. Um, the regulators also said that leading up to the actual raid, they conducted a six-month-long investigation, which included looking at um, what they called financial flows and recruitment at target companies. So we actually aren't sure whether the companies themselves were aware of this investigation or if it was something that the regulators just sort of conducted leading up to the raid. As a second example, in China, just in terms of how developments in geopolitics um, can impact regulatory enforcement priorities, which then also have a knock-on effect on um, investigations. Um, as, we, as we all know, geopolitical tensions between the China and U.S. Uh, have had a profound effect on regulatory reform and also enforcement activities within China. Um, legal, For example, legal requirements for cross-border data transfers that were introduced last year has had a very big impact on businesses in many sectors, including multinationals and also overseas listing processes for Chinese companies. And processes for investigations under these various laws can be actually quite complicated and carry a high degree of uncertainty. So, for example... Um, Investigation procedures for the unreliable entity list, which is China's trade-related blacklist um, regime, gives regulators very wide discretion over what they can gather and how they can conduct interviews. Um, and that's certainly something that businesses need to keep in mind when they're preparing their policies and procedures to handle investigations and to communicate with stakeholders. Uh, on top of that, regulators can also suspend and later resume investigations sometimes. And this also creates a degree of uncertainty that, frankly, is a challenge for companies to prepare for and to manage. 
So I think geopolitical tensions have also broadened, as I've said, broadened the scope of issues or events that could trigger an investigation. Um, for example, in 2019, shortly after the U.S. government imposed trade sanctions on Huawei, regulators in China launched an investigation into FedEx. Um, they claimed that FedEx was diverting packages that were en route to Huawei. And since then, FedEx has actually been the subject of multiple other investigations in China, which obviously creates some um, issues for the company as well. And on top of that, there's also further speculation that FedEx could be added to the unreliable entity list. Um, but regulators actually haven't given concrete confirmation on that, and which really further highlights um, the uncertainty that is at play sometimes. And that sort of brings me back to one of my original points on all of this. You need to have an agreed upfront policy to handle uncertainty, to handle the, uh, you know, when the unexpected happens. And that's, I mean, it, it's on one level, of course, the unexpected happens. I mean, that's why we have disaster recovery plans, business continuity plans, because the unexpected happens and you need to be able to recover from it. But just to sort of um, add another sort of geopolitical twist to all of this and another example. Um, and this goes back ooh, four years, 2018, um, which, and this blew out, came out of a clear blue sky. I mean, there is a continuing argument, let me put it that way, between Saudi Arabia and Canada. And it derived from the Canadian then foreign minister talking about human rights, women's rights, that sort of thing. And Saudi didn't like what Canada had said. And literally on in on a single day said all Saudi citizens need to leave Canada, all Saudi sovereign wealth funds need to divest Canadian assets, basically doors shut all the way around between Saudi and Canada. Um, and literally on a sixpence, sorry, that shows how old I am, literally people had to turn around very quickly to exit businesses that they had been in for really a very long time. And I'm, I'm sorry to say it would appear that the relations between Saudi and Canada haven't defrosted. Um, Saudi has asked for a public apology and Canada has simply declined to do that. So it is another example where firms need to have a plan or a policy, a procedure in place for what happens if, the what if for all of this. And part of the underpinning of that plan and I would like to think that the vast majority of firms would have this anyway, but you would be surprised when you get into the weeds and the detail, the number of firms that are not up to date on this is what precisely do you have where? And that's data, assets, people. Where exactly is everything that you do? Now, even if you are a super organized firm who has line of sight to absolutely everything, I would extend that question to where have you outsourced and do you know precisely where everything has been outsourced to? Again, you need line of sight to everything so that when the unexpected does happen and corporate investigation hits, whether that's geopolitically driven or not, you have sufficient information that actually you can act appropriately and deal with it all appropriately. And that's no... Uh, that's no mean feat because whilst, of course, you need to have line of sight to manage your business, to you know prove that you are compliant, it is another level of granular detail down if it is a corporate investigation and if you need to exit something very, very fast. 
I mean, we're not going to talk about the Russia-Ukraine example right now, but there are an awful lot of firms right now who are figuring out how they make an exit route if they've not already done so. So, I mean, I'm going to shift gears very slightly. I mean, for the corporate investigations, the geopolitics, it's a range of issues that could well have triggered all of these things. So one of the things we're beginning to see more and more is that non-financial misconduct is a trigger for regulatory action. Um, Helen, where are we on the non-financial misconduct triggering corporate investigations and other investigations by regulators and so on? So in some of the Asian markets, um, non-financial misconduct carries an additional anti-bribery risk, um, especially for the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Regulators are becoming more proactive in investigating things like entertainment and gift-giving practices that could constitute bribery. And this is not just the Department of Justice um, in the United States. It's also regional regulators are also... um, becoming quite quite hyper-focused on bribery risks stemming from these types of expenses that sometimes just aren't really clear and they could become a subject of an investigation where the regulator comes in and just basically asks for all sorts of documents or all sorts of receipts and records and, and whatnot. Some other th- non-financial misconduct factors uh, include misconduct at client events such as uh, sexual harassment that in the past months has has become an issue in China and it was widely reported in the news. Um, There were also investigations that were involved. And sometimes in some of these instances, um, senior executives do end up losing their jobs or becoming subject to an investigation, sometimes a criminal investigation as well. Um, In China, there have been a few large tech companies that have self-reported their own staff, uh, especially over bribery claims and over other types of non-financial misconduct as a way of mitigating the risk exposure of their own companies. And I think um, separate to that, in terms of senior executives possibly losing their job or becoming subject to an investigation themselves, um, it's important for executives to think about maintaining their own records or their own suite of evidence uh, in terms of mitigating their personal liability risk. One really good example that comes to mind is uh, Carlos Ghosn, the former chief executive and chairman of Nissan. He was arrested in Japan a few years ago, I think 2018, on financial crime charges, um, which he denies. He spent some time in detention before he escaped and fled to Lebanon. But while he was in detention in Japan, he faced numerous challenges in putting together his legal defense. And some of those challenges included access to documents. Yes, I mean, I'm not sure we've quite heard the um, end of the the, uh, Nissan Head's case. However, I think it's worth pointing out that actually it was treated more seriously than if he'd committed some heinous physical assault or crime. I mean, it was taken extraordinarily serious in Japan, seriously in Japan and, and indeed elsewhere. Um, and just to add into the sort of suite of examples we have for the non-financial misconduct, um, and I know we're, we're focusing on Asian examples, but there is an absolute corker that arose, arose in um, the UK. Um, Lloyds of London managing agent Atrium um, has... And it's the Lloyds of London's biggest ever fine, north of a million pounds, and censure for Atrium. 
because they not only condoned and enabled really quite awful misconduct by one of its employees, but they were just going to um, try to cover it up because they wished to avoid the bad publicity. And that bad publicity, of course, has now got even worse because it has all come to light. So the non-financial misconduct is treated very, very seriously around the world and absolutely is a trigger for all sorts of investigations. And we've talked about uh, investigations. We've talked about, in the case of Atrium, full-on enforcement actions. Um, but the other aspect in, in this sort of spectrum that firms do need to consider is the potential for post-pandemic reviews and what that may throw up. Now, I realise in some parts of the world, post-pandemic is still slightly wishful thinking, but there will, I suspect, pretty much everywhere be some sort of pause at some point, hopefully very soon, when there is a retrospective look at how firms dealt with the sudden jump into hybrid working, the lockdowns, everything else. Now, I suspect a lot of firms are doing post-pandemic reviews or continuing reviews of how they're doing, how flexible working will work for them, hybrid working, what worked, what didn't work, the impact of the digital transformation that has happened, all that sort of thing. But I think what firms should be aware of, uh, or at least factor into all of that, is it's again a what if. What if, as part of that post-pandemic review, something inappropriate is found or something is found that was inappropriate at the time? You are going to have to treat that like a corporate investigation, in effect. You are going to have to talk to your regulator about that. You are going to have to do an internal investigation that may well turn out to be an external investigation in some way, shape or form. And just be aware that a post-pandemic review not only builds you as a firm and potentially as senior individuals, your suite of evidence to show that you've done all of the right things in all of the right ways, but... Do be aware that, you know, I mean, given the white heat of the pandemic, all sorts of things may have been missed through no, you know, deliberate error or anything, just at the sheer speed of things changing. Be aware that it may not be evidence of compliance you are necessarily compiling. You may well find evidence of non-compliance. So upfront, when you are doing your post-pandemic reviews or you're doing your compliance monitoring with a look back at pandemic working environment, be aware you may find things that are non-compliant, a breach, whatever. Have a plan for how you are going to deal with that. It's not quite the same as a full-on dawn raid with the police knocking down your door, but it is again something it is much, much better to be aware may happen and have a plan of action for if it does, these are the three things you're going to do first. It is always, and this is sort of stating again the entirely obvious, be prepared. Be prepared to understand that there is a what if, you're not necessarily going to find compliance throughout and the evidence of that in a post-pandemic review situation. I mean, it's unlikely, I suspect, that it will be anything near as serious as the full-on corporate investigations, particularly ones that are often geopolitically motivated, but be prepared that there may well be stuff you have to remediate. And the last thing I will say on that is any kind of remediation plan needs to be properly resourced, which again is a conversation to have at the most senior levels of the firm. 
So not only should the most senior levels of the firm be prepared for corporate investigations, dawn raids, all of those possible bad news coming out of post-pandemic reviews, they also need to be prepared to resource and possibly resource really quite substantially any remedial action. So on that, and I realise we've sort of talked to the swathe of things uh, going perhaps not so well, but at least firms can be on the front foot to prepare for all of that. So moving on to the takeaways, um, from my perspective, and this is slightly repeating what I've said earlier, have an agreed and indeed cascaded policy on how to deal with corporate investigations. Link it to your firm's policy on dawn raids. And I talked about dawn raids on an earlier podcast in really quite a lot of detail. So please do um, have a re-listen to that one. The other thing I would say for the corporate investigations and the dawn raids is be very aware where you have a shared office. Because if you have a sort of communal front desk and lots of firms in a particular office building, which after all is pretty normal, make sure that that front desk knows your policy on dawn raids and corporate investigations. Make sure they don't fling the doors open for just anybody. Um, And on that not quite so cheerful note, I'll pass over to Helen for her takeaways for compliance officers. So, Suzanne, I agree that having a comprehensive compliance program, especially one that links all these sort of different aspects, data management, uh, communications, and all those different protocols together, that definitely remains the best way that's uh, best way for companies to protect their interests. Um, I would also add that in the current geopolitical environment, it's important for businesses to reassess uh, the, the scope of issues, I guess, that, that could trigger an investigation. And they need to cascade this knowledge down to staff. So staff should retreat, re- sorry, receive updated training on investigations and also some of the geopolitical factors. Um, businesses should also review the need for multi-jurisdiction legal support and also other sorts of support such as forensic accounting and um, record keeping and such. So in terms of uh, legal considerations, I also think that businesses need to be aware that uh, legal privilege especially can differ between jurisdictions in Asia and also it doesn't necessarily apply in some cases where it's, it's a question of national security as well, and that is something to be aware of. And the national security piece, of course, links back to geopolitics. On that, thank you very much, Helen, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, do hope you found it both interesting and useful. Now, I'm going to include a whole bunch of links to pieces referenced in the podcast uh, episode notes. I'll also include that usual link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. If you have the time to review the podcast, that would be very much appreciated. And do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thank you for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence.